Good morning. Um, when I had the opportunity to uh, share the sermon this morning, the first suggestion I made was that maybe I could start a new series, like Ben does. So then we'd have three of them going at once. We'd have what Ben's doing in, in the Philippians, and we'd have what I do, and we'd have what Dan's doing. And I suggested, maybe, that I could start what I think would be a 30-year series through Isaiah. <laughs> and that's about how the other elders reacted, too. So I've gone to the other extreme this morning. Uh, we're going to consider just a single verse. In fact, most of our time this morning will be spent on a single sentence um, that will stand alone. But it's a profound uh, statement of Scripture that could... Uh, radically alter your conception of what Christianity is. So to see it in context, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It's the last chapter of that letter. If you're using the blue uh, Bibles on the pew in front of you, I think it's page 1065. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And we'll begin reading at verse 5 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see to it that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, concerning your brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So here in this final section of the letter, amidst... Uh, you know, greetings, final business, travel plans, and various things, we have two surprising, forceful statements. One of them is in verses 13 and 14. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. 
The second is in verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. This is Paul's final word to uh, this church in Corinth. I want to spend our time on this second statement. And uh, Paul has dictated this lengthy letter, uh, probably perhaps to a trained scribe, but it was Paul's custom at the end of his letters to pick up the pen himself and in his own hand write a few closing words. It was kind of like Paul's signature, and it authenticated the letter is really coming from him. So you would expect that as he does so, he would try to summarize in just a few words the thought that he wants left with his audience, perhaps uh, to summarize the main message of everything that he's written so far. And uh, it's surprising then what he writes. He takes up the pen, and I think the New American Standard translates it best for us. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, or our Lord come. I want us to look at this this morning uh, in some detail. And uh, our general outline will be to uh, take some initial observations on this verse. And then we'll see that it teaches us how to make some judgments. It also teaches us what to pursue. And we'll finish with considering how we respond to this uh, statement. So just initially, I think our first impressions are that we're kind of surprised and shocked by this language of cursing. This uh, statement so blunt and direct actually is rare in the New Testament. And here, especially in this context, it just seems to come out of the blue. In the Greek, it's an imperative. That's a command. In English, our commands are always second person. So we're looking at the person we want to do something and we're saying, you, do this. Greek does that too, but Greek has another construction that we don't really have a good parallel for in English. It's a third person imperative. So we're talking to he, she, or it, not directly, but it's uh, probably best translated as we have here, he must do this. And in this case, the active, you know, the command is actually a state of being. So it's he must be accursed. We uh, aren't quite sure in a construction like that who in this case is doing the cursing. There are some translations that make it sound like Paul is just pronouncing a, a curse on these people. But I don't think that captures the meaning of the verse. Uh, it's certainly not kind of a roundabout way to tell the Corinthians to pronounce a curse on certain people. No, this is a curse that comes from God. Paul is giving us a fact of the final judgment. The Greek is an, uh, the tense of the verb is an ongoing state. So Paul is saying that on the last day before God, there are going to be certain people who find themselves in a state of continuing irrevocable cursing. So I think the shock value of this verse is very intentional. Even amidst this uh, seemingly unrelated context, Paul wants to say something to us that is deadly serious. So we need to give it our attention. I think the first thing we should do is pause and consider why there would be an accursed state in the first place. Uh, what's the reason for this? And it's not 
that there are certain people who are going to show up before the judgment throne on the last day, otherwise good people, but discover that they've missed some important detail, like going to the BMV to get your license, and you stand in line for an hour, and then you find out that unless you have this piece of paper from your electric company that has your address on it, they're not going to give it to you. Um, No, it's not that situation at all. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Fallen humanity is already under God's curse. Our original parents rebelled against God, and with them the whole human race. To be sure, we do our own acts of uh, rebellion and sin, but they come out of a heart that is oriented toward rebelling against God right from the moment of our conception. Uh, What we do is an expression of a heart that is bent on sinning. And it's only a matter of time and opportunity before it shows itself. Um, We display this through countless acts of selfishness, unfaithfulness, and uh, hostility. But more than hurting one another, we either ignore God or we relegate him to a status that's below ourselves or below the things that we want in this world. And that is deadly serious because we were made to honor, to enjoy, and to represent God in the world. And when we fail to do that, we fail the complete reason for our being created. Think about when you go to the store and you buy some thing that uh, you want to meet a need in your home and you get home and you find out it doesn't work. Uh, So you might take it back and exchange it for another to see if that was just a defective unit, but you do that two or three times and you begin uh, to conclude that this is just plain a bad product. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. So if you can, you take it back and get your money back, but if you can't, you throw the thing away. It's your way of cursing this thing that doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And we are all in that situation before God. What we have come to accept as normal in our world actually is a state of accursedness because we don't fulfill the very purpose for our creation. There will be no new curse on the last day. On the last day, what will happen is the curse for those who have not escaped it will become final. And with it, the horrible prospect of eternity separated from all of God's goodness. But there's hope because our statement starts with if. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say if anyone can't recite the gospel or if anyone hasn't done enough good works or if anyone hasn't received a certain religious ritual. He says if anyone does not love the Lord and that's the thing that's worthy of our consideration this morning. Before we dive in, I think we should think about why this is a fitting close to this letter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is unique among the New Testament epistles in the number and diversity of issues that Paul covers in the letter. The church there were dividing into factions over favorite teachers. 
They were tolerating sexual immorality. They were filing lawsuits against one another. Those who considered themselves strong were damaging the consciences of those they considered weak. Their observance of the Lord's Supper had degenerated into an affair in which some were getting drunk and some were going hungry. Their meetings had become disorderly in occasions where some people were, were exalting themselves over others. And some were suggesting that there was no resurrection of the dead. But apparently, this statement, what's on Paul's mind as he closes his letter, covers all of that. All of these diverse issues are somehow dealt with by this statement. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. It's a comprehensive statement then. And actually, it covers the whole gamut of what we face today as Christians. It covers everything the church has faced for the last 2,000 years. This statement gets at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And therefore, it covers everything that we as Christians deal with. We see in this statement a glimpse of the whole gospel. A Christian is somebody who has beheld Jesus as so wonderful and so attractive that his heart can only respond with heartfelt affection and joyous, wholehearted love. At the same time, the reason it's so wonderful is it saves us from being accursed. There's a danger. We are all living under the terrible prospect of being under God's curse forever. So to ignore the gospel is the most tragically uh, dreadful mistake that anyone can make. The Bible is a big book, and the New Testament even is so packed with meaning that we spend our lives learning from it. And yet, in a sense, this statement uh, gives us the basic orientation that we need to understand it all. So let's dive in. What I want to look at uh, this morning is that this statement will, two aspects of this statement. One is that it teaches us how to make some judgments. It separates some false and true. And second, it teaches us what to pursue. And we'll close our time by considering how to respond. So first, the statement teaches us how to judge. Now, as in Paul's day, there are many false gospels that masquerade as the true thing. This statement, if it really gives us the heart of what it means to be a Christian, it cuts through all the counterfeits. And I'd like us to consider four this morning. First, our statement cuts through nominal Christianity. This is Christianity in name only. It's calling oneself a Christian, but there's no content to that word. The Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University has done some polling, and they say that if you ask American adults if they're a Christian, how many do you think say they are? It's 69%. Seven out of 10 adults in America will tell you, yes, I'm a Christian. But if you go on and ask them another question, you ask them if they think they're going to go to heaven when they die, only because they've confessed their sins and accepted Jesus as their Savior, the percentage drops to 
Over half of those who want to be known as Christians don't even look to Jesus alone for their salvation. And of that 28%, fully half of them say that all religious faiths are of equal value. So they're saying, yes, I look to Jesus alone for my salvation, but that's just me. There's lots of other ways, and they're all just about as good. In fact, of that 28%, more than a third of them would say that a person can earn their way to heaven by doing enough good works. This is not the gospel. And it's not what Paul means by loving the Lord. To love the Lord, you need to know who he is. You need to know that he is, in fact, God in the flesh who came to bear our sins for us as the only way that humanity might be saved. To love the Lord means loving the Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, if you're here this morning and consider yourself a Christian because you're an American, and that's what we are, aren't we? Or maybe because your parents called themselves Christians. Or maybe because you're not a Buddhist and you're not a Muslim, so you're a Christian, right? Or maybe because when you come to a service of public worship, you come to one in a church, not in a synagogue or a mosque. So you're a Christian, right? The hard news this morning is that you are still under the curse. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. But keep listening. There's wonderful hope. Second, our statement cuts through liberal Christianity. Liberal Christianity is a set of ideas that calls itself Christian, but actually doesn't accept very much of what the Bible says as true. Um, It believes it honors Jesus, in fact, as a great man, as an influential teacher, as uh, an inspiring example, but not as Lord, not as God come in the flesh to save sinful humanity. It doesn't believe that God rose, or that Jesus rose from the dead. He was a man, just like anybody else, a great man, but he died like we all do, and it's his memory that inspires. But you can't love a memory. You can't love an inspiring idea. In the context of our verse, you can only love a person, a real living person. If uh, Paul wrote, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins, which is another way of saying you're still under the curse. So, if you find yourself this morning believing in God and finding yourself attracted to the ideals of Christianity, but you're not comfortable with this talk about Jesus being divine and rising from the dead and coming again to judge the world, the hard news this morning is that you're still under the curse. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Time won't let us answer all your questions this morning, 
But I hope that this clear and startling statement of Scripture will trouble you. I hope it will prompt you to consider that maybe what the Bible says about Jesus is true after all. And there are many of us here who would love to join you and help you in making that exploration. Third, our statement cuts through what I'll call self-serving Christianity. This takes many different forms, but all of them in one way or another make Jesus our servant. Jesus is there to make us healthy. or Jesus is there to make us wealthy. Jesus is there to save us from discomfort or suffering. Jesus is there to make us feel good about ourselves, telling us we're okay. But to love a nice Jesus of our own making is not to love the Lord. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. If you do not love him as Lord, you do not love him at all, because that's who he is. Paul wrote, for the love of Christ controls us. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So, if your faith in Jesus is faith in someone who is only there to provide your desires or save you from your fears, and nothing more than that, the hard news this morning is that you're still under the curse. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. But stay tuned. Giving yourself to Jesus, the Lord of the universe, is much better than taking to yourself an imaginary Jesus who doesn't exist. Finally, our statement this morning cuts through intellectual Christianity. This is a Christianity that knows the facts of the gospel accurately, but only in one's head. Jesus is a great idea, something interesting to study and to argue about, but nothing more. A person of this sort loves to study and analyze the Bible and analyze what it says about Jesus, and yet one's heart is not the least bit warmed to think about him. Our statement this morning reveals that becoming a Christian isn't adopting a religious system. It's coming into relationship with a real and living person. James wrote that even the demons believe the truth. And this gives us an opportunity to see something interesting about our statement this morning that you wouldn't pick up from the English. The word translated love here is not the word used most commonly in the New Testament for love. It's not agape, and a, a word that you're probably familiar with if you've been around church circles for a while. No, the word is uh, phileo, the verb form, or philia as a noun. It's a love that is between close friends. It's heartfelt affection. It goes beyond a commitment to someone else's welfare, to a true affection for their person. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. So, 
If you're here this morning and think that you know all about Jesus, but find yourself with no true affection toward him as a person, the hard news this morning is that you're still under the curse. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. My hope this morning is that the fire of real affection will be lit in your heart by the Holy Spirit today. So, from a negative standpoint, this simple short statement uh, teaches us several things to weed out that are falsely called Christianity. But from a positive standpoint, it tells us as Christians what we should be pursuing. So let's consider what it means to love the Lord and what implications that has for evangelism, for discipleship, and for the church as a whole. So first, this simple statement gives us the goal of evangelism. If we want those around us to escape the curse, we need to draw them to love the Lord. Now, for sure, we need to tell them the facts. They need to know who Jesus is. They need to know why he is Savior and Lord. They need to know why they need a Savior and Lord and all that that means. But the goal is not to get them to nod to the facts. The goal is not to get them to pray something we might label a sinner's prayer. The goal is not to get them involved in the activities of the church so they start looking like a Christian on the outside. Rather, the goal must be to draw someone to love the Lord. And our statement clearly indicates that nothing less will do. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. So I think that has at least three implications for us in doing evangelism. First of all, we need to be seeking to draw others to the Lord that we love. It has to be an overflow of our own heart of love for him that leads us to tell people in the first place. Our lives need to demonstrate that. We need to be those who not only speak, but whose lives reinforce what we say as clearly being uh, the life of someone who delights to please one that we love. And third, genuine evangelism takes time. You can't rush someone into love. They have to see his loveliness for themselves and respond to it with the affection that the Holy Spirit will work in their heart however long that takes. It's the Holy Spirit who needs to warm their heart to look at Jesus and desire nothing more than to be in right relationship with this one who is the most wonderful being in the universe. So uh, that must be our goal in evangelism. Second, uh, our statement gives us the goal of discipleship. We don't become better disciples by filling our heads with knowledge. And we don't become better disciples by becoming disciplined practitioners of certain activities. Those things can help, for sure, but only if they are means to loving the Lord more. The goal of discipleship must be to love the Lord Jesus more. Paul wrote, the aim of our charge or the goal of our exhortation is love. 
that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So as we work together to become better disciples of the Lord Jesus, the goal of discipleship must always be to love the Lord more. And third, our statement gives us the goal of the church as a community. The goal of the church assembled is to cultivate, to refine, and to display our love for the Lord Jesus. Someone coming into our midst and observing our service and walking out, we don't want them to say, boy, they were friendly, or they have a well-ordered service, or the music was beautiful, or that was a good sermon, thought-provoking. I hope they say all those things, but what we really want them to say is walk out of these doors saying, wow, those people really love Jesus. And there's a uh, corollary to that. They should go away saying, wow, those people really love each other. So, how do we get there? It might uh, seem from what I've said that loving the Lord Jesus is something hard. But actually, for a heart that's been awakened by the Holy Spirit, this is the easiest thing in the world. All you need to do is consider Jesus. Uh, To know him, to truly know him, is to love him. So let's do that this morning. Let's consider some things. Consider John chapter 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Friends, do you love this one? Consider Matthew 11. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Church, do you love this one? 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, do you love this one? Consider Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Saints, do you love this one? Consider Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christians, do you love this one? How do we express it? Well, there are many ways. But in closing this morning, I want us to express it in the way that our text leads us to do. I haven't quite finished the verse, have I? It ends with Maranatha. That's an Aramaic phrase. It's the language that Jesus himself spoke. And it's actually two words. I think it would probably be pronounced more like Maranatha. And it means, our Lord, come. It is the cry of the one who loves the Lord. After Paul has finished saying, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Paul turns away and expresses his own love for the Lord by saying, our Lord come, and he invites us to do so with him. It is the cry of the one who loves the Lord, who says, Lord Jesus, come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come. May your name be honored in all the earth. May the knowledge of you cover the world like the, earth, like the uh, waters cover the sea. It is the cry of the bride for her bridegroom. Come, Lord Jesus, so that we may be with you forever. Let us sing this together. If you would stand, let's express heartfelt love for the Lord with all your hearts as we sing, Come, thou fount of every blessing. Tune our hearts to sing your praise. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You who have so loved the world that you sent your only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Lord Jesus, we love you. 
you who first loved us and gave yourself for us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you warm our hearts, ignite in us that fire of holy passion for the Lord Jesus Christ, to the glory of the Father. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.